Okay, looks like everything is working. That's great. Well, I just want to welcome everybody to the Eugene Church of Christ. Uh, if you're a guest here this morning, we'd like to get to talk to you, let have a chance at that. So stick around after we're all done. We are glad everybody is here. Now, I just need to let you know that the reason I'm up here is because Calvin is off accompanying the youth group on their trip to Idaho. And uh, they're off to help and encourage the Lewiston congregation in Idaho, and they're going to be back on Monday. So it's a short turnaround, but they're going to really help and encourage that congregation. Um, next week, just so you know, Calvin is going to be on vacation, which means I'm not going to be up here, but Norm Hoffman will be up and be speaking uh, next week. So don't be surprised when that happens. For those of you who are guests this morning, my name is Mike Duffield, and I serve as an elder here at the congregation. And this morning, I'm going to take advantage of the holiday that we have coming up. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the ideas of freedom and independence in the Gospel of John. And I want to begin in maybe not the place you would think one would want to start. In 1943, World War II was in full swing. For the Americans, it meant a time of sacrifice and intense focus on winning a global war in the hope that it would bring about the end of all wars. It didn't do that, but it did focus the country in a unique way. Everyone was encouraged to contribute to the war effort in some form. There were things like uh, recycling endeavors, rationing was taking place, finances were being asked to be given to the, uh, to the United States to help back up the soldiers and those serving around the world. And at that time, uh, even the artists wanted to get involved. And in 1943, an artist by the name of Norman Rockwell was asked to contribute to the effort to raise war bonds. And he created a series of paintings called The Four Freedoms. The Four Freedoms. I don't know how uh, well-known they are these days, but I recall... Uh, seeing these in some form or another as a kid. These paintings became posters and they would encourage people to buy war bonds. They would have, have those attached to them. Giving the bond, of course, was a way, giving money for the bond was, of course, a way to encourage uh, the war effort and it made people feel like they were doing something at the time. Now, the contributions of these pictures represent the American ideals, okay? And this was talking about a way of life that was in, the, in this independent country that represented, was represented to the world in the 40s. They're idealistic, heightened realities. The goals of a nation founded on the concept that hard work would reap rewards. So what were the ideals that Rockwell focused on. Freedom from fear, the idea that you could come home 
and safely go to bed at night. Freedom from want that instead of having to scrabble for food, you would have enough. Freedom of speech, the ability to say what you need to say without incrimination, without problems. And freedom of worship, the ability to worship whatever your faith in a country and be safe. That was a unique thing at that time. Now these paintings represented the thing that as Americans we were reaching for. It was a call to help keep this country, the United States, independent and to maintain our freedom. Very important concepts. So is that what we have today? Well, yes and no. It is, sort of. Generally, we don't have to be afraid of going to bed at night and being attacked. That's a general rule. Sometimes we can have what we want if we work for it. And yes, we can speak our peace, whatever it may be, and there are some very interesting things that people have to say, but we can't cause panic in the process. And the wonderful thing that we have as Americans is that we are free to worship. People are not coming to our door and telling us we can't be here. So freedom, wonderful thing. Uh, but that, frankly, these are all pretty much outward items, things that we do or that we have uh, access to because of the actions and the choices that we have. These are things that we actively have to provide for. So what about going to the source of freedom for us? I mean, we are Christians, so let's turn to the Bible to understand freedom uh, in, the, in, the, in a different way. Uh, the God of the Bible has very different ideas of what freedom looks like. If you go into the Old Testament and the prophet Jeremiah, he was sometimes characterized as the angry prophet. But if you go there and look at some of the things that took place in chapter 34 of Jeremiah, get ready. <laughs> the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah made a covenant with the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they all obeyed, all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant, that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying at the end of seven years, each of you mess, must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and served the six years. You must set him free from your service. 
This was the law of the land. This was the law that the Lord God had given to them. And here they went and didn't do it. So, Jeremiah is given another word to send to the people. We pick it up again in verse 20. And as you can expect, it'll be interesting. And I will give them, speaking of the punishment that's now going to be given to the people, into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his officials, I will give into the hands of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives, into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has withdrawn from you. Behold, I will command, declares the Lord, and will bring them back to this city, and they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. As you may have expected, God takes freedom seriously. He expects our words and our actions to match. If you say you will do it, see that you do it. (laughs) He's not subtle at all. What about New Testament times? Well, If we turn to the New Testament, Paul talks extensively about the idea of freedom in Christ. And we're gonna look uh, look at one passage, but it's Romans 6 and Romans 8 where he focuses most of his comments about freedom. Romans 6, 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You have been set free. Peter echoes that sentiment in his first letter, chapter 216. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So the call to freedom wasn't abandoned when we reach Jesus' time, when the New Testament comes into being. Uh, It was not abandoned at all. In fact, the foundation for what Paul and Peter have to talk about comes from Jesus himself. And the early church had very solid ideas about what that meant. We're going to look at a passage, John 8, verses 31 through 36. Now, prior to this passage... Jesus has been teaching in the temple area. And as he teaches in the temple area, he's been challenged by the Pharisees about being his own witness to himself. And he addresses at one point his own death that is to come. And as a result of his teaching in this time in the temple, many people are coming to believe. Let's start, go ahead and read through this passage, starting in verse 31. So Jesus spoke to the Judeans who had believed in him. If you remain in my word, he said, you will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
We are Abraham's descendants, they replied. We've never been anyone's slaves. How can you say you'll become free? I'm telling you the solemn truth, Jesus replied. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave doesn't live in the house forever. The son lives there forever. So you see, if the son makes you free, you will be truly free. As happens oftentimes when Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees or by other Jews, they have an agenda. They come with a context. And remember, the passage starts, and Jesus spoke to the Judeans who had believed in him. Some of them listened and heard what they heard and said, this lines up with what I know of God. And they actually believed him. But the thing that offends him is the fact that because they're of Abraham, that doesn't give them a free ride. Because they're descended from Abraham, suddenly that doesn't mean they're going to get in. And that's offensive because that's what their tradition says. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. Now, they understand the whole idea of following what Jesus has to say. That's what they bought into. They understand the idea of being a disciple. And that makes sense to them. And they know the truth, or at least they think they do. But the implication that these people, these other Jews, are slaves seems to be far-fetched to them. Now, there is a certain level of irony going on here. In order to recognize that this is actually something ironic, you have to realize their history is full of them being slaves, right? I mean, we have them in the history of the Jewish people. They became slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. They were in slavery to Babylon and Assyria for so long, and they're currently under the thumb of Rome. Let's just ignore all that's going on and pretend like we're not slaves. That's what they're effectively saying. So, they see this and they're offended and they claim not to be slaves at all. It's, it's just absolutely silly. But here's the point. In this argument, Jesus ignores their problem, right? He goes to the heart of the matter. He's going to focus on the very things that God focuses on. And the problem has always been about the individual's relationship to sin. I'm telling you the solemn truth. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. That is the truth. Sin is a condition of the heart that results in a breach in that relationship that we have to God. He says in there, everyone who commits sin is a slave to it. Sin is those doing things. And it carries the idea of being committed, of making something happen that shouldn't be happening, of being the author of something. And in this case, 
it's actually turning away from God and from Jesus. Jesus says, turn to the one who is permanent, who has been, who is, who will be the great I am. And this is offensive. This is offensive to them. When Jesus offers freedom to us and freedom from sin, it's not hollow. It is not a hollow promise. He doubles down and he changes not only the external commission of sin, but he goes back to our dependence on it prior to being his followers and his disciples. He reminds the Judeans of something very true and practical. He says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave doesn't live in the house forever. He goes back to a very practical point. Look, if you're a slave in someone's house, you can be bought or sold at a moment's notice. That's it. You're done. Because you're a slave. But the son lives there forever. And so you want to attach yourself to the right person. You don't want to be the slave to sin. You want to be the one who is attached to the son. Just as a slave could be sold, so sin will quickly drag us deeper and deeper into dependence and away from independence. True freedom, Jesus is saying, is freedom from sin. Jesus says when we sin, it isn't simply a moral glitch of some sort. It's simply that we have given in and allowed someone or something else to start redirecting us and calling the shots in our lives. Sin, in fact, over time weakens us and keeps us from being able to even come back and turn around. We can't resist anymore because we've given in. And another master has taken over and has given the orders. And we are driven by that master helplessly, unfortunately, down the wrong path. We may have even convinced ourselves that this is okay, that this is the right way to go. N.T. Wright, in writing, uh, commenting on this passage, wrote this, and I just found it pretty concise. So what is this dark power that takes over people, that Jesus could see had taken over his own people, the people who prided themselves on being children of Abraham? The larger category in the scripture that explains what's going on here is idolatry. Idols, all the more powerful when not recognized as such, are anything at all that humans place above and give their ultimate allegiance to other than the one God himself. Why do we do this? Because idols always promise a bit extra, or perhaps a lot extra. An idol starts off as something good, a good part of God's good creation. But when it attracts attention and begins to offer more than it can appropriate deliver, it starts to demand sacrifices. 
You have to abandon part of your proper allegiance to God and offering to your neighbors, to your family, to your other duties in order to give fresh and inappropriate attention to the new idol, whatever it is. Idols are addictive. We have learned as a nation, as a country in the world, a lot about addictions in our day. The last few generations have been suffused with studies, with people trying to figure out what's going on, why we do this, how we allow this to happen. We know that the compulsive behavior of, of idolatry oftentimes becomes destructive, and that's when families implode. And often this adultery, idolatry of sorts is associated not only with alcohol, cannabis, or other drugs, but, and now we're learning this with technology as well. Think about your smartphones or the social media or Facebook or any one of those things that people are using these days. They can become self-destructive, especially when we begin to make ourselves look like somebody else in that media. When we remake ourselves into a new image and then can't live up to it in real life. Now, technology is and can be a blessing. It brings people together in some amazing ways, and it's just a wonderful thing to have. But the bottom line is this, a real relationship involves real people, and that becomes a form of freedom. You're not beholden to the technology itself. The half relationships we have with our screens, they can be a step towards slavery if we let it. I don't know about you guys, but on my phone, Every week, I receive a report. And the report tells me how much time I spent on my phone. It tells me how many uh, times apps that I've used have been accessed. And it tells me how many times advertisers are trying to get me to look at them. It's amazing. But it's scary, too. Thousands. In a week, thousands, tens of thousands. Wow, we're being bombarded. It doesn't have to be that way. Real people, not false people. Focus on those things. In Jesus' time, the equivalent of this type of idolatry showed up as the cry for freedom. Everybody in Israel wanted to be free from Rome, which they didn't identify as slavery, but was. Uh, and they did everything, they focused everything on that. They were so focused that when the Messiah comes, they can't see him. When Jesus shows up and performs signs and miracles, when Jesus shows up and teaches unlike anyone else, they can't see. They're blind. They're so focused on their agenda and the way things get done for them in their way the tradition that they expect to guide everything. That can be the way that we become too. It doesn't have to be. We have to make an effort to get out of that sort of thing. All right, back to our text. There we go. So what is Jesus 
do. He says, I tell you solemn truth, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave doesn't live in the house forever, the son lives there forever. So you see, and now Jesus offers the solution. He's not gonna leave people dangling. He's going to take them and remind them, first of all, that the stranglehold of sin doesn't have to be the only thing that is. The remedy itself is turn to the Son. Turn to the one who can make you truly free. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's easy. Now, it's only one verse. So if you see, if the sun, so you see, if the sun makes you free, you will be truly free. But in that one verse, we're being called back to an image that begins in Genesis. The idea in Genesis starts out with God creating Adam. And Adam is called the image of God. But the one thing happened that made the image of God fall. Sin. Okay? What we see in Jesus is that image of God being taken to its epitome because Jesus becomes the true human, the true image of God in a way that no one else could or will ever be able to do. He becomes the one and the image bearer for God who still wants us to be free. He wants us to be free from the love of sin. And as simple as it sounds, it's difficult. At its very best, um, our, our true being and our true person is only seen in Jesus. N.T. Wright, one more time, same, same source. The true human identity comes from the true human himself. If the Son makes you free, you will be truly free. There is nothing else. There is no other way. Jesus did not teach another way. He said, you must come through me to find true humanity as God intended. And what a place, what a place to be. This has the potential to change each of us. We can become people who genuinely live in freedom if we want and are driven to help others and to seek them find this level of humanity, or we can turn away and again become slaves to sin. The desire for freedom is something that comes from the Creator Himself. It was given to us in the beginning. God wants us to be free to serve and do the things that he needs. God wants us to be free from slavery and to be able to be the kind of people that we can bear his image and be truly human. But the reality is we're stuck. It can only happen through Christ. It can only happen through that one perfect sacrifice. So the church, in general, 
in every situation should be in the freedom business. We should be people who are offering to those who are stuck in the slavery of sin the opportunity to become free of that and focus on the right thing, the true human, the true image of God. If the Son makes you free, you will truly be free. The Judeans didn't get it, but perhaps we can find our freedom in turning faithfully to the true image bearer, Jesus, and become genuine Christians, people who truly bear the image of God so that others can see and want to know why we are the way we are. That is worth celebrating, and that is what we should be doing every day. I hope that you find joy in celebrating this coming 4th of July, all about independence and all about freedom. May God bless you as you go about this coming week. If you have a prayer request or are considering baptism, I'll be available up front up here to talk to you, listen to you. Please come forward as we stand and sing.